Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Clone A Willy, the DIY molding kit that allows you to make an exact replica of your penis or any penis into a high quality, vibrating sex toy, all in the comfort of your own home. It's the most personalized sex toy on the planet, and it's all DIY. Dildo it yourself. You can also make a replica of your favorite vulva with the Clone A Pussy kits. That's right, Clone A Willy is for all genders. Each mold is 100% body-safe materials, 100% platinum-cure silicon, and available in nine colors, including glow-in-the-dark. They are manufactured and shipped right here in the United States, out of Portland, Oregon, and have been since the company was first formed in 1996. We love and support small businesses, especially ones that promote sexual liberation. Use promo code SHUTUPEVAN for 20% off at cloneawilly.com. Or find Clona Willy at your local sex toy shop. Can I just ask? Shut, shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut after, up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut, shut up. up. Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just? Shut I didn't even say anything. You know, and just like that sort of had like a return to form episode. So I'm going to to borrow from that and return to form by way of the Shut Up Evan intro. So hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz. I'm joined once again by my co-host and friend, Sean Ross. Sean, hi, how are you? We are back. That intro, it's iconic. You know, I just figured it was time to dig into the archive, you know, and, and bring bring back our girls. <laughs> Wait, but how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm great. I'm great. Can we talk about the thing or you don't want to talk about the thing? I'm not allowed to talk about the thing. Okay, great. So Threads <laughs> is here. <laughs> Threads is here. <laughs> and I got to say, do you know that like iconic gay porn meme where it's like the guy's about to get a dick in his butt and and the top says, so how does that feel? And the bottom says, I'm deciding. I fucking love it. Oh. <laughs> you know, I've had it for less than 24 hours now. And like so far it's passing the vibe check. It's weird to me because like, you know, impulsively I want to go to Twitter mm-hmm. to post things. I'm trying them out on threads. There's definitely like a more upbeat energy to threads at present. It's definitely like we haven't yet like gone into the mud of where I think Twitter sort of descended into. Mm -hmm. But I do know there's concern from folks about there being increased censorship, specifically in like the nudes space over on threads. So I'm curious to see how that will pan out. But like the energy, I mean, I've seen people 
I was going to say tweeting about this, but they're threading. Is Are we doing threading as verb? I think threading is what I've seen. Okay. So I've seen people threading about like sort of the first day of school energy of threads and people sort yeah. of like deciding who they want to be on this platform. Yeah. And as eye rolly as that like thought pattern is, I do understand it because I don't know about you, but like I show up differently on different platforms. 100%. And so I do think there is some level of like, what is my energy? What is my vibe going to be on threads? And because it sort of launched very quickly without a lot of thought, I feel like people are sort of diving in. And I feel like you can go viral very quickly right now on threads or just get more traction than usual because I think the platform wants to wants you to engage with it and it's going to get you to engage with it more if it makes all of your content do well. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's sort of that energy of like, well, let me shoot my shot. Yeah. Can you back up your mic a little bit? Yeah. So are you, so tell me this much, like, are, are you threading? I, I've done one thread, didn't go viral. It was about <laughs> Ruth Marie from Survivor Panama Exile Island. So niche content, niche content. Niche, but, yeah. you know, sometimes my niche content does very well on Twitter. The problem is I've kept my Twitter very separate from my Instagram because, like you say, you show up differently, right? And I don't necessarily want all these people I have on Instagram seeing my Twitter if that makes sense, because Instagram is a place for friends for me. And I don't necessarily like need my friends on my Twitter. And so now all of a sudden I've got all these followers who I would never have on Twitter that are people that I know. And I'm trying to figure out how I reveal my true personality to these people that I only follow because they're hot. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. And from what I'm understanding so far about threads is that you're going to be seeing content of people that you don't follow. Uh -huh. It's more algorithmic and it's going to be less based in real-time updates, which I know was something that like Twitter was already moving away from, but I know that's already causing a brouhaha. I'm curious to like revisit this conversation down the line. It's very much has that like, like I said, first day at school energy, but also just like the newness I think is making everyone come out with like really strong opinions out the gate. Once we're a bit more settled in in a week or so, let's circle back and see if we're still threading. Yeah, and I, I could do without the corporations trying to have their viral tweets. It's like, Wendy's, we get it. You know, it was cute on Twitter. Like, it's a little forced for day one. JLo, JLo's not posting threads. JLo's account is posting threads. Is this a migration from Twitter to threads? Or right now, do you, if like from the corporate perspective, are you going cross-platform? Like you post the same thing on both platforms and see which one does better. Because I also feel like if this is a migration ultimately, I feel like Twitter could sort of have a rejuvenation as sort of like the has-been in like a subversive way. Like the Tumblr. Exactly. So I sort of worry because I do see people doing the whole like goodbye Twitter, hello threads. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm not sure if it's that simple. I feel like Twitter can sort of be like that abandoned building that everyone wants to go inside and check out after a while. It's a little lawless. Which I think people love lawless mm -hmm. societies. And it's like at the end of the day, what we're giving Elon Musk up for Mark Zuckerberg, we're not, it's not a revolution over here. We're not wiping our hands entirely clean. Yeah. Uh, before we get into today's topic, though, I do just want to mention briefly, for those of you that stayed on the idol train, oh my god. Uh, I know, Sean, you have not yet watched it. I don't even know if that's a yet question mark. <laughs> but it, like, 
imploded in a way that I've never felt that emotion while watching something before where I wanted it to end so badly, but I didn't have the willpower to turn it off. But like everyone was making the wrong decisions from to borrow a Jeremy Strong term dramaturgically. Like I just couldn't believe that this was where we were going to net out. But I bring it up because there is a redemptive moment in the show. And that is Troy Savant's cover of George Harrison's My Sweet Lord. Uh, how it is integrated into the show is not worth sort of trying to understand, <laughs> but it is available on Spotify and I find it absolutely transfixing. Um, for anyone that's a fan of Troy, he has this song Angel Baby that I think has a similar quality where it's like it ends and then you just want to hit replay. Anyway, the idol is something that I look forward to the day that Amy Simetz, who was the original director of the show, I'm sure she's NDA'd within an inch of her life, but that, you know, that inch can sometimes, an inch can become a mile. And uh, wait, no, in this case, we'd want the inch to shrink, right? <laughs> yeah, you want you want a centimeter or whatever, whatever you're... Okay, well, whichever direction that would need to go, I look forward to the day that she sort of speaks her truth because I'm very curious to get her experience of all of this. But... Today, we are not here to talk about the idol. In fact, we are here today to talk about the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. We're here to talk about my idol, my new idol, Alison Dubois. Yeah, let's get into that. So I was trying to think of what you and I would discuss this week, and then it dawned on me after seeing the news that Kyle Richards and Mauricio Umansky had separated that we should go back in the time machine and watch the Dinner Party from Hell episode of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which in some senses predicted the outcome of today. Before we dive into the episode, though, Sean, give me your familiarity with The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Virtually zero. Does that surprise anyone? No. Because I feel like every week I'm coming on here and blind <laughs> reacting to something from 20 years ago. And so The Real Housewives has been my biggest cultural blind spot of all the pop culture cultural blind spots I have. I feel like all of The Real Housewives are at the top of my list because never got into them, didn't really have a lot of interest. Once I did have some interest because I realized it wasn't just not going to go away, at that point there was just hundreds of episodes and I was never going to catch up no matter how hard I tried. I did do this experiment a few years ago because I heard this, I don't know if it was like a concept on a podcast or something like that, but I heard this concept that if you really wanted to get a sense of a show that you should watch season four, episode seven. And I think the concept of that is that by season four, if it's a long running show, they've sort of hit their stride. They're comfortable. The characters have been developed. You know, they're dealing with some exciting plots. And that episode seven sort of falls within sweeps time. And so you should have a really good episode on your hands. And that like, it may not apply to everything, but just that if you want to get a sense for a show, it's a good place to dive in. And so I tested this out with multiple Real Housewives. I watched New York, which by the way, was a hilarious episode. I can tell you it had, I don't think her name's Ramona. 
But there was a woman walking down a runway and she was doing like a real face walking down the runway. That would be Ramona. That was Ramona. And then in the same episode, somebody was having a sort of like launch party or something for Kodak, who they were had a partnership with. And somebody showed up there. I think it was Sonia Morgan, maybe. Well, it would be Jill Zarin having the launch party, but Sonia, yeah. Right, but somebody showed up and was like, Kodak, isn't that a dying brand? Antiquated. Antiquated. Yes. (laughs) That was a great episode of television. But I did watch uh, Beverly Hills as well, and it didn't it didn't hit the same way because the whole episode was fallout from the previous episode, and so I just wasn't following it. So that's kind of what I know about the Housewives. So it's not a lot. Okay, so I like the idea of like this season four, episode seven experiment, mm. but I am more of a I would say like with anything season three, sure, because I feel like with season four. I feel like you, it's very easy that the show might have peaked. I mean, I'm thinking about Buffy, for instance, and it's like by season four, you're post peak. Season four, episode seven of Buffy is the initiative, which is like mm-hmm. a good episode. But I feel like season three of a show, you've obviously had the first season, which is establishment. Season two, which is sort of like beginning to cook with gas, but starting to understand can we test the limits and what are the limits? With season three, I feel like you've established the flow. And also, I mean, in talking about, you know, you use New York Housewives as the example, your first episode of New York was Bethany-less, and that's because you started with season four versus season three. So I like the experiment in theory, but I feel like season four might be a little late to the game. Understood. It could be tweaked. Yeah. I think it's an exciting uh, sort of effort to say, hey, I haven't seen this thing, rather than start from the beginning let me, you know, get in the mix versus, you know, uh, to, you know, what's a metaphor that one could use here? I'm licking the spoon. Sure. There you go. Now, this is season one, episode nine of the series. It aired on December 16th, 2010. The IMDb description simply reads, quote, Camille hosts a dinner party to patch things up, Uh but things took a turn for the worst. And did they ever. What I am particularly excited about this discussion is that I think this is a great starter episode in that you don't need a lot of context coming into this episode. There's a bottle episode-esque feel to this. I mean, obviously, like, the impact of this episode will last and, and ricochet throughout the rest of the season. And obviously, you know, there's a fight that precluded this episode that sort of ignited everything that goes on. And yet one of the great things about this episode is it just has this incredibly standalone quality and the setup of the dinner party. I mean, it's unbelievable that this is reality television because there's something about this episode that feels like a great American playwright wrote it and then passed it over to a roster of like Uh top tier soap opera actresses and said, go. Because it just has all of the necessary ingredients to build up to the drama. And then what I, I mean, there's so much I love about this episode is it's like iconic things just keep happening. And I'm sure there were a couple of moments in this episode that you, even as a non-Housewives viewer, were familiar with because I feel like, you know, this episode aired in a time before memes and gifs existed. And yet there are moments from this episode that were lifted years later because they needed to be. They needed to be brought into the lexicon. 
Actually, the only thing that I was aware of was the image of Alison Dubois with her, as they called it then, electronic cigarette. And so to see these vape clouds coming from her mouth, but I had no idea really what her deal was. I knew that she was Patricia Arquette's character in the medium, but I didn't know that she was as unhinged as she was in this episode. And it's set up so beautifully because even before the dinner party begins, it's mentioned that Allison maybe has a drinking problem. Yes. And then again, going back to the fact that like, this is like a great American play. Not only are there cocktails served, the cocktails are the size of a fucking disco ball. They're Margaritaville fishbowl. Oh, wild. And then it's not just the props too, right? It's the set design. The chairs that they are sitting in are part of the reason why this scene is the way it is. And then also the staging, right? You have Camille at the head of the table, and then you have Kyle as far away as possible. And then you have this fight erupt between Taylor and uh, 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 Kim. Kim, which we'll get to out of nowhere. Um, but but first, let's like back up a little bit and like you know meet our characters. So I gotta say, for longtime fans of the show, Lisa Vanderpump is the character that you know. When I watch this stuff, I try and watch it <laughs> through the eyes of Sean, which is to say, like I've not seen this before. What would my takeaway be? And I feel like Lisa definitely emerges as the most interesting character in this, in that she is an incredibly affluent person who, and I forgot this about her because I think her personality changes so much through the years, but at this juncture in season one, she's very, very easy breezy. Of all of the women, she seems like the one that would be the easiest to just kick it with. Well, she's sort of the voice of the audience in the moment where she's like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? I mean, she doesn't say it in those words, but she's like, what is wrong with these people? And what am I doing here? And that's a question I was asking myself was, how is she friends with these people? Because these people are all absolutely delulu, wacky, off their rocker. And she's pretty normal, despite the fact that she is like unbelievably wealthy, it seems and a little hoity-toity. She's actually not. She's she's the most down-to-earth, I would say, of all of them. And I'm just like, what is she doing here? Right. And also, I just love, there's just so many small details in this setup, but you know, we get that fabulous scene with Camille, yeah. and she's calling all of the women over, you know, which I, even that, the idea of calling people to invite them to a party is- On her landline, on speakerphone. Corded phone, I believe. And wait a second. Lisa's answering machine message is insane. Insane and so <laughs> fucking funny. And then they do the cutaway to her in the confessional laughing at herself. <laughs> and what's so great, and this is why Camille is such a fantastic villain, is like she got got. And then she has this moment where like she's having a laugh about it because she suddenly thinks like, oh, I've been made aware that I'm the butt of the joke. Isn't that funny? But with Camille, I think there's just, again, like a soap opera actress quality to her that in that moment, she's unable to be authentic, but she like wants to have a laugh, but she sort of glitches <laughs> in that moment because she's unsure of how to react to the fact that a joke has been played on her, but she wants to play it off as though she finds it funny. And I love that, that mixture there. What if Lisa has a really important phone call coming in? What if there's an emergency? My guess is that typically Rocia, who is Lisa's housekeeper, would 
pick up the phone. Oh, so she, what, she was screening calls from Camille today? Well, here's what's hard to say. This is 2010, uh-huh. so cell phones did exist. Um, so I think that there was an element to this where it's like Camille was given, like, you know, the order of the day from the producers, which is like, we're going to sit down at the desk and have you call each of the yes. women. I think okay. the women were probably preempted. You're going to get a call coming in from Camille about something. Please make sure you pick up. And I think in the case of Lisa, I think she was like, oh, I've been given this. What can I do to make, you know, to amplify this and make this even better? And that's the thing I think that's so fun about Lisa. Even the scene of her driving with Ken is just really, really fun. I think that that sense of fun and whimsy in a housewife is not something you get too much of anymore, especially from someone like Lisa, who it's so easy to have this impression of who you think she's going to be, especially because, you know, this is just episode nine of the series. We're still getting to know them, but there's just something very devilish and childlike about Lisa, despite the fact that she's the oldest woman in the group. And also, like you said, I think, one of the great things about this episode is how seriously everyone is taking everything except for Lisa. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes her such a, I was going to say a foil. She's not even really a foil. She's a great comedic beat while also being the voice of the audience here to say like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. She's an enigma. She is. Um, so we get all these sort of like fun little micro plots leading up. One of my favorites is we we key in on Adrian, um, who just fucking hates her husband. And I just love that beat of him coming home. He was, I believe he was like wrestling with their young kids and somehow his nose got bumped and he had to have something done to it. And Adrian, rather than like sympathize or, you know, console her husband, is just sort of like you idiot like what 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 what's wrong with you why are you injured like you're a big baby yeah which i think is one of again what makes adrian a, such a fun character is i love the idea of i hate my spouse but i'm not in an unhappy marriage necessarily like she there's something about their energy that feels very sitcom and not sad yeah but with adrian i mean i will spoiler alert they do end up getting divorced years later but some couples are especially on housewives you watch a very unhappy marriage and you're like this feels uncomfortable whereas with adrian and paul it's sort of yeah i can't help but be like i want more of this they just fundamentally do not seem to understand each other. So then we get the limos arriving, uh-huh. right? And so this dinner party, it's there are nine women present. We have our six housewives as well as three guests. So we have Camille, who's bringing her friend, Didi, and then her friend, question mark, Alison Dubois, who for those don't, that don't know, Alison Dubois is a medium, and she is the inspiration behind the series Medium, um, which was somewhat popular during its time. Uh, she will let you know, as will Dee Dee, as will Camille throughout this episode, that, that Alison Dubois is a medium and has a television show inspired by her life. Um, and then you have Kyle bringing her friend, Faye Resnick. Prior to watching this episode, did you know who Faye Resnick was? Never heard of her. Okay. Um, I think that I remember, I mean, I hadn't either when this first aired, but I think that it makes all of this all the more interesting that that of all people for Kyle to bring, it is someone who has a past and one that is dredged up by Camille 
during this meal. But so those are our characters. And what's great too, is that we have everyone divided into threes here, right? We get uh, two limos of three women. So obviously we have Camille, Didi, and uh, Allison who are at the house, who are, I believe are having a cocktail prior to the arrival. <laughs> they started at 2.30 PM. Yes. Uh, and also Camille <laughs> mentions that Allison hits below the belt when she drinks, which is part of the greatness about Camille here is that this is all premeditated. I mean, I don't think she knew exactly the way in which this would go off the wheels, um, but she had unscrewed the bolts from the wheels prior to the arrival of these women. And it wasn't just that she hits below the belt, but it was like, she also has this incredible ability that none of us have, this extraordinary power to tap into the other world. And she's off the clock, but you never know what happens after she has a couple cocktails in her. She may just pull out a dead relative or read your mind. Absolutely. And one of the most fun things throughout this episode is you get a few moments where like, Allison will say something completely insane and you'll see Camille's face where Camille is aware that her guest is being crazy while also, in her mind, justifying the fact that, like, well, this is her guest, and the purpose of this scene from Camille's perspective is to destroy Kyle, and Allison is successfully going for the jugular and destroying Kyle. And so Camille's tr sort of trying to reconcile her objective in this scene with the fact that Allison's maybe taking things too far, but she's not going to abandon the ship that is Allison. And so Camille walks this very fine line of, like, trying to recognize that Allison is a little too drunk for for <laughs> to be on camera, but also like Camille wanted this, right? Like, as you said, they were drinking these giant drinks at 2.30 p.m. So Camille is just really interesting to watch throughout all of this. I also think it's notable that in 2010, again, I don't work in reality TV, but I think there was a different relationship to alcohol and reality TV in that I think that Today, I think, again, just think, production monitors how many drinks people have because ultimately they are liable for, if anything were to really go off the rocker, it's ultimately on production from a legal perspective. And so I think there's more of a consciousness around how much people drink and production not wanting to, anyone to be able to say, well, they were being fed drinks from production. Yeah. I think at this yeah. time, it was very much the Wild West. And like, I believe that Alison Dubois was like absolutely bombed prior to the women arriving. <laughs> and then things just went from there. But it was so interesting, like you say about Camille watching Alison and sort of like, you could see this breaking of the fourth wall where Camille is concerned for her friend's reputation right. on TV. It wasn't just you're going too far and you shouldn't say this because you're hurting people's feelings. It wasn't that. It was, this is my friend who has a really good reputation. There's a lot on the line potentially for her. You know, she is this person that this show is based on. She has a business, etc. Like, you could be getting yourself in trouble and you could almost see like just Camille sometimes her eyes would dart towards the camera and you would see this knowing smile and be like, okay, Allison, okay. And I really love that. I love in a reality show when you can see some recognition or acknowledgement from the cast that they're on a reality show and it has consequences. Absolutely. And especially this being season one of the show and 
I just think people were a little less aware of how one acts on reality TV. I think there was an authenticity to this era of reality television that you don't have anymore. There's no opportunity to self-edit in the way that comes season two, you've seen yourself and how you come off and you can change and tweak certain aspects of who you are. But at this point, that was not the case. Um, and so, yes, I mean, they're just, <laughs> there's so much in in this about these women from this season, if you were to continue on to next season, the shifts that happen, especially in Camille, because obviously Camille's status as a villain is cemented in this episode, and it was something that Camille was clearly wanting to change going into episode two. And would you believe she was quite successful in oh. flipping the script? But, um, but, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So this limo arrival, like I said, we're, we're divided into three. So we have Adrian, Lisa, and Taylor riding over in one limo. And then we've got Kyle, Kim, and Faye in the other one. Now, I do just want to mention, because this was an era of Housewives where people traveled to events by limousine. Yeah. And what's funny is in the Kyle, Kim, Faye limo, I believe you have Faye and Kyle sitting together in the back. And then Kim, wisely choosing to sit in like the long strip part in which you're sort of facing perpendicular to the other women. Mm -hmm. But what's funny is it's Lisa who gets into the limo last in the other limo. And Lisa is not going to sit perpendicular because when you're sitting perpendicular, the camera is going to be getting you from the side. And so Lisa's like, no, 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 Taylor and Adrian, you need to move over and we're all gonna sit in the back here. So they're like crammed into the back despite the fact that they're in like the largest vehicle <laughs> that one can travel in. I just loved that choice because it's like limos are just really impractical when it comes to filming reality television. Also limos are so retro. It's such a retro luxurious thing that it you you see them turning into driveways and this is Beverly Hills, right? These are not easy streets to drive on in a smart car. Like you can't right. navigate these turns and you see it like, it's it's a close call every time it's making a turn. And in my head, I'm like, how is this even happening? I hope they're tipping this limo driver well. Right. And I love that we get this moment in the limo from Kyle saying, I don't want any drama. Because again, going back to just like how well set up all of this is, we just get all of this preamble, whether it be Camille making the call to invite all the women or Camille laying out to Dee Dee earlier on in the episode, her intentions with a little bit of a wink in her eye and Kyle kind of going in there saying, I don't want any drama, which by saying, I don't want any drama, what she's saying is there's gonna be drama, but I want it to be on the record. It's very Valerie Cherish for her to just be like, I want to go on personal video diary to say, I do not endorse this. And that is what <laughs> Kyle is doing in that moment is saying like that whatever is about to transpire, it wasn't my choice. This happened to me. So they arrive and then from the outset, the energy is just off, which you know that feeling of like you're trying to bring two friend groups together and there's that first five minutes when you're trying to let it happen organically and not orchestrate things. Uh -huh. But you also feel the need to sort of like help broker the like, this is so-and-so. And so, yeah. and so we just get that awkward energy of the women seem to go in. Not, no one is really friends with Camille of the six women that are arriving. And so you sort of get that initial feeling of it being six versus three but then later on, it sort of becomes, that's the funny thing. It very much becomes Camille 
and Allison. Sort of Allison is her like a uh, backup singer. Yeah. And then you've got Kyle with Faye as her backup singer. And then you've got this third string in the case of like Kyle having Kim and Camille having Dee Dee. But then the funny thing about this episode is Kim, who you think is sort of, the, you know, there as Kyle's defender, as she makes clear in the limo beforehand, then out of nowhere gets into it with Taylor. <laughs> And so you sort of have this fight blowing up mid-fight. And then again, going back to the staging of it all, you have Kyle and Camille could not be further apart in the table. Yeah. And then, as though forming some kind of quadrant, you've got Taylor and Kim, who happen to be in the middle and across from one another at the table, them getting into their own fight across the other... So it's like if... Uh, Camille and Kyle are at the two, um, the smaller ends of the rectangle. Then you've got like the hot dog part of the rectangle. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about yeah. here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you've just got this cross fighting happening. And because it's the early days of reality TV, you don't have that many cameras up. So even the way it's shot, you can sort of tell that like the camera people don't know what to focus in on because there's so much chaos. And the, just the audio, the post audio that they must have had to do to try to isolate mics and get some clear. And they did it. They did it very well. I mean, did it make sense? No, but I followed it. First, you know, Faye is very mild mannered and recognizing the fact that, you know, she's just a guest here. But then Faye becomes activated when I think she realizes that in Faye's mind, she understands that this is a setup. And so she's like, well, if they're going to set up my friend Kyle, I'm going to have to jump in here. And and Lisa has that great confessional where she says that uh, uh, Faye was like a panther prowling through the jungle. And it's true because you sort of see Faye recognize what's going on and go into full mama bear mode to protect Kyle. And that's when things just really spring off. But again, the funny thing about the staging here is that... Allison and Faye are on the same side of the table, but they have, I believe it's Adrian is who's in between them. And so they're trying, they're also going back and forth, but they have to lean forward to the table and look down at one another in order to have the fight, their own sort of sub fight within all this. And it's in that moment uh, when, well, it's right after that where sort of uh, Taylor and Kim start going at it. And there's this shot of Camille and she leans back in her chair and she licks her lips. And it very, very much reminded me of uh, Regina George in Mean Girls when she throws all the papers in the hallway and she's just watching everyone in the school begin to fight. And that is Camille in that moment where it's like she lit a match and threw it and she's watching the flame catch on and she just, it's like she becomes full villain in that moment and I love it. I have to ask because the way that they talked about New York and what happened in New York, which was never explained to me because it would have been assumed that I had seen it if I was this deep in the season. The way they were talking was like they survived a mass murder. What happened in New York? God, I'd be lying if I said I remember the specifics of it, but Basically, Camille accuses Kyle of something I don't know what. And Kyle, again, we really hadn't had housewives like blow ups like this. And that is when famously Kyle turns to Camille at the table and says, you're such a fucking liar, Camille. 
The thing about Kyle, I was saying this to the friend that I was watching the episode with, is, and again, what makes this such good television is, you know, we're so used to there being a hero and a villain. And obviously, Camille is quite the villain here. Kyle's not quite a hero. I mean, Kyle is a mean girl. Like I said, Kyle went into this in the limo, kind of bluntly stating the fact that she was not going in there to make amends with Camille. But why should she? I thought Kyle came off the best of anybody there. Well, here's the thing that you don't know, which continues on the next episode, is Camille is so upset about what transpires at this dinner that she decides to pull out... So Mauricio, Kyle's uh, husband, question Uh mark, um, he is a realtor, and Camille uses him as, as her broker. And as a result of this fight, Camille texts Kyle and said, we will no longer be using Mauricio... Uh, to sell our home. Oof. And so basically there are like real implications to this, but also again, if, if thinking about this from like a, you know, workplace perspective, if I were Kyle and it's the first season of this television show, this is my cast and everything. And I had a dust up in New York and I've been invited to this dinner party, which seems like an olive branch. I think I would go in there with more of an intention Let's move forward. I feel like Kyle's attitude, and granted, she was accurate in the fact that Camille was not making a good faith invitation. That's the thing. They both sort of approached this with their claws out. Kyle was invited to this with, I think, ill intent. Mm-hmm. I do not think it was a good faith invitation of let's have a normal night in with pizza. I do not think that was ever Camille's intention nor was it the show's intention and so i think kyle knows oh we're getting the girls together the girls who don't hang out in real life you know this is for tv and so i you know i've got my backup and i'm ready to pounce if needed because i feel like i'm being set up and i'm i'm on camille's turf I'm at the disadvantage here. Right. So I think Kyle was completely reasonable. I don't think she was unreasonable. And obviously, like, it makes for terrific television. So I'm not saying, like, I wish it had gone down differently. I will compare it, though, to another iconic dinner moment in the Housewives canon, which is uh, The Real Housewives of New York Season 3. You famously did not touch down on (laughs) 3. But there's something called Scary Island, which is a trip that the women take, and Bethany and Kelly famously get into it. And what's interesting about that fight is, like, Kelly is, like, completely off the rails and going in on Bethany, and Bethany remains cool as a cucumber throughout that fight, which in turn makes Kelly seem even crazier because Kelly is so activated and it's doing nothing to Bethany. And so I think if Kyle were to handle this more shrewdly, she would say, I'm going to let Camille look like a fool. But I think that this is the kind of thing you learn once you've been on Housewives for a long time. And this is like, you know, freshman year of the show. So she doesn't know better. But the thing about Kyle, and this is sort of a recurring theme for Kyle, is that when people are activated, she always seems to meet them on their level. And again, I think that that makes for good television often. But I think in life, when someone comes at you with that sort of energy, the best response is to sort of let them do that while you sort of remain cool because it highlights the fact that how extreme and how 
unhinged they are by remaining hinged. And I also think just like even in the aftermath when they're outside afterwards and the sprinklers go off, which by the way, like, come on, like you couldn't write this shit. When the sprinklers go off, it's Kyle sort of, she's so revved up about it where it's like, she's not able to let it go in a way uh, versus saying like, you know what, let's get out of here. Because the whole idea of them leaving is it's like, this is beneath us, right? Like we, we do not want to be here. And yet Kyle sort of, continues to spin out and then we have the aftermath of taylor and kim fighting but then kyle is like no you two are gonna share a limo together going home it just <laughs> makes more sense which sadly we don't get that limo ride at all because the taylor kim fight seems to as quickly as it ignites is as quickly as it goes out and then you got that great moment when kim is saying goodbye when she falls into the little bush inside the house did you catch that moment no <laughs> didn't <laughs> she goes like back inside to say goodbye because that's the thing it's like no one seems to be angry with camille everyone sort of seems to be like allison's a mean drunk well because that's the thing that that's what was evil genius about camille in this was bringing allison as the sort of red herring or the like look over here right. at this thing right because this is what's going to ignite the fight but that's only happening because I put this element into the evening. Right. And then you get like so many after the fact scenes of Allison, drunk Allison, just continuing to dig in at Kyle. And, the, and to bring this all full circle, the reason we bring this up is because one of the things that Allison says during the dinner is the other women are encouraging her to do a reading. And her whole thing is like, yeah. I'm off the clock right now. I'm just here as a dinner guest. But finally, after being coerced by several of the women, she decides to give Kyle something of a reading and turns to Kyle and says, as far as your husband Mauricio goes, he will never emotionally fulfill you ever. As soon as the kids are bigger, you'll have nothing in common. Which leads us to today. I think they've been married, I think it's like 17 years or something. Um, we've seen them there. I mean, they're together on the show and every season we've seen it. And now they are separating. I say question mark because people ran the exclusive but then Kyle and Mauricio both came out with a joint statement being like, we're, we've had a tough year, but we're working through our marriage. People has yet to cover that. People is continuing to double down. So there's something strange about all of this because People Magazine is not a gossip outlet. They are very much like, they're a trusted news source when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. They, they fact check. So I don't think they would have put out this story without it being confirmed. And then the fact that the person at the center of it is saying it's not true, but people hasn't done a follow-up story saying like Kyle Richards denies it. There's something that makes me think that we are going to get uh, this as a plot point on the next season of Beverly Hills, which, you know, I don't mind. Um, anyway, though, this was a really, really fun episode of the show. I liked the prolongedness if you will, of the scene. Like there was just so much that kept playing out. We got so much development early on in the episode and then this really lengthy dinner. And like I said, the fallout after the fact is really fun. Um, let's end by by touching down to, to ask you, if you had the time and the bandwidth, would this episode make you want to continue watching the show? I started watching the next episode. Oh. Because I was so curious to see, because I saw in the preview that Kyle was going to tell Mauricio about the premonition from Alison Dubois. And I thought, well, that's so interesting, given what's happening today. And so I was curious to see how that conversation was going to go. Didn't get that far because I had to go to bed. But uh, I will say that 
Alison Dubois, I can't believe that she's not on the cast. I think I would watch if she was a cast member because she was so iconic. Alison Dubois did more for vaping than Euphoria. Oh, without question. It's wild. And when she said that she was going to shove it up her ass, like... The, it was just like the graphicness of her as the night progressed, the graphicness of her reads on Kyle. And where did this come? Like, it didn't even come from anywhere. It's just right. so wild that she chose this person as a target. And at first it seems random, but then by the end it's like, oh, she had a vendetta. Yeah, the vitriol was mm-hmm. unprecedented. Glad we were able to revisit this pop culture relic. Um, So that is The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills Season 1, Episode 9 recap that you didn't ask for. And now, (laughs) without any further ado, uh, we are going to get to our interview today with the winner of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 15, the great Sasha Colby. Shut up, Evan. I've got the reigning crowned queen of RuPaul's Drag Race season 15 here right now. Sasha Colby, I am delighted, honored, and all the things. Period. I first got to encounter you live at Sasha Velour's nightgowns several years ago, and I remember being warned before. They were like, Sasha Colby's gonna be here. They were like, just get ready. And you (laughs) performed My Mind by Yeba. Drag shows are not known for being quiet. And yet, I think we all were in a collective state of like, oh my God, did we just witness this? What is it for you about that song? Because there's a lot in that song. I actually saw that particular version that I do. Yeba has a live video on YouTube. I think about you all the time. And watching her sing it, got me inspired like watching her express these emotions and it just made me want to take it and like make it my own paint a picture with my body and cry a little mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do love that I love like changing the pH in the room mm-hmm. with just a number <laughs> they're like what happened here I mean we know of the park and bark you know famously Latrice Royale on Drag Race for instance who brought I think the nomenclature of park and bark I, I was not familiar with it before but I don't think we see it in person nearly enough. We're really used to like the bodacious, moving around the stage, dollar bills <laughs> flying drag. And there's certainly a place for that. I mean, yeah. there's a place for all drag. But I think there's something particular about, as you say, changing that pH of the room mm-hmm. um, that has an effect on the audience in yes. like a subconscious way. Yes, yes. And I, it's very cerebral. Yes. And especially like, I always think I was like, after Neon and Neon did that crazy. Yeah, Neon Calypso. Yes, yeah. like she went off and yeah. it was where she had like her letters of her uh-huh. name. It was yes. amazing. Yes. And I was like, well, I'm about to like <laughs> completely you turn this whole show. <laughs> So let me ask you, you are currently in the thick of the thing, right? Sometimes I get to talk to someone who is known for something, but is like in an offbeat or something. You're in an onbeat. This is the, like <laughs> such a huge moment for you. When you zoom out of it all, how are you feeling in this moment of everyone wanting your attention? Everyone giving you, no doubt, a lot of energy. How are you receiving the energy? Before I even won, just the whole season playing, um, going to each uh, booking up until the win, it got more and more momentum. It felt I could feel the energy of the crowd just coming. It's a lot of energy to to take 
on. I can't imagine like, you know, like huge stars and like Beyonce, all that energy coming to them at all times. You have to definitely, I pulled away. Like I didn't go on my phone or on social media for the first two days that I won because I just wanted to like not get caught up in the congratulations and like yeah it was like I needed it personal for me because it was a personal goal although it was a big win for a lot of people in the community but I for me I just needed some perspective I'm like let me just go walk let me just walk around with my friends let's get brunch and like just be a human before the win it's been like two years of preparing doing it sitting on the fact that I can't talk about it all these things and now it was just like that relief so I was like just for a moment before the inevitable, like you're on that phone and yeah. you're lost yeah. <laughs> like, trying to catch up. Yeah. I want to know like when you first discovered Drag Race because it's been on for 15 years oh, now. And I know you're a fan of the show in addition to now being a winner of the show. That's that's wild that like I'm now canon. <laughs> you're canon. You are canon. <laughs> it's so crazy. Yes. Well, I mean, I watched from the first season. I remember the first episode, the first season, Bob Mackie. I was like, this is the one. It was great. And I knew a lot of the girls on. Well, actually, I only knew Nina Flowers because she would do Continental. And so I knew her and, like, loved her. But watching these stars being made for 14 seasons, my daughter included, like, just a fucking star. Ugh, like, I'm so glad I get to be part of it now. Yeah. It feels great. You mentioned Continental. You're also a winner of Miss Continental. For people that don't know, can you sort of explain... We, t- we hear a lot about mm-hmm. the pageants on Drag Race yeah. because a lot of the girls that come on the show have previously competed in the pageants. But I don't think a lot of people know actually what the pageants entail. Yeah, let's talk about it. Please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would, I would kind of sum it up as Drag Race, but in one night. So usually there's a bunch of categories. There's swimsuit, well, for Continental, swimsuit, evening gown, and talent. You have an a interview section that you do group interviews with five other contestants to the judges board uh, the, like before you actually do the competition aspect. And then there's, it gets narrowed down to a top five, and then you get an onstage question and answer. Um, and then the best girl wins. But it's, you know, it's based off of... Miss Universe, Miss America, all those like quintessential cis things that we weren't allowed to participate in. So we made it our own. And um, especially for Continental, it it's for me, it was very attractive because it was very trans um, forward. There were so many trans girls at won. So it just affirmed what I already knew about myself being trans and then wanting to be a performer. And really like a kid from Hawaii that probably would never be able to like get out of Hawaii but thank goodness of my queerness and my love for drag but I found like back when there was no drag race so you had to like run a pageant Mm -hmm. in order to get a booking in order to you know be a working drag queen so that was like the perfect jumping off point so how did you first discover the world of pageants even before you knew you wanted to participate oh yeah well I already loved like Miss Universe I remember as a little one watching Brooke Lee, she was like Miss Hawaii and then she won Miss USA and then Miss Universe. And I remember watching it with like boys at a sleepover and I'm just like living. <laughs> I'm like, I'm watching this for different reasons. I'm like, I hey, love your hair. <laughs> I love your hair. I hope you win. But as far as like the drag pageants, Hawaii was really big with Continental. Like they love the Continental system and um, the legends that it's made. So we would have, me and my best friend, there was VHS times, like 
for real VHS, The Best of Monica Monroe, volumes one and two. It was grainy, and we would watch it, like, religiously. It fed us. And then we would collect all those continental tapes and watch it every year. A lot of, like, Hawaii girls would just have, like, continental viewing parties. So we would, you know, have a big party and watch, watch the game. <laughs> when you're watching Monica on the screen. Ladies and gentlemen, please meet and greet your new Miss Continental USA, Monica Monroe. Was there something that clicked for you? I feel like so many of us have these moments in our youth when mm -hmm. we're watching something and we either, we maybe see ourselves in it, we see the possibility of a mm -hmm. world bigger than the world we're currently occupying. Like that's the power of media. And back then, yeah, we didn't have HD. Oh. We're watching grainy Oh shit. baby. <laughs> what was it that you saw in that? With Monica, she is unapologetically confident. Like I've never seen a performer stare you down in your eyes and lip sync to you. And it just, it's very, it could be very disarming and very almost like uncomfortable because she's just captivating. And she actually gave me some really good advice, which is this, the park and bark, very on the lines of that. I was working with them when I was 23 to 28 with Monica and Mimi and all, the, and all the girls at the Baton. And I was dancing crazy. We were doing three shows a night, five nights a week. I was like going off. They're like, okay, you're great. Love it. Cut half of that in half. Like, and she said, understand the power of the silence of the music. And I just always, as a dancer who needs to move, I'm always trying to, I always try to perfect my stillness, just loving a ballad. But now I'm like <laughs> crying in a ballad, <laughs> being, a, being a stripper. <laughs> it reminds me um, when I read Barbara Walters audition, she sort of like gave her rules of how to interview. Mm -hmm. And she was really big on the pause mm -hmm. after the person first answers the question, because which is similar to what you're saying about sort of like, that silence, because in that silence, something will come of it. Mm -hmm. Someone will make the first move. Someone will try and occupy that space yes. in some way, and something interesting will come about. Mm -hmm. Leave uh, space to breathe. Need space to breathe, absolutely. So before drag, let's go back to young Sasha. What were you like as a child? Obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm the baby, so I mean, there's different perspectives. I felt like very shy and like, Probably very to myself, ultra femme. Um, my siblings might think I was like the baby and like got everything, like the favorite, but everyone thinks the other person's a favorite. Um, but I think I was really just like always just like in my sister's heels. Like the whole photo album of me as a kid is like me getting in my sister's clothes <laughs> or like in the heels in drag. I like, so this was not a surprise. This shouldn't have been a surprise when <laughs> I told them. <laughs> I'm going to keep this on. <laughs> I'd like to keep it on, <laughs> You know, I just saw a video that my brother and sister-in-law shared of their son, who's three or four in heels this morning. And it was, like, just done with such joy. And I just was, like, yes. it made me really proud. Like, and I it was, like, I almost felt compelled to say something. And I was, like, it's not even that they're doing anything. They're yeah. just letting their child be their child, which it's not that we shouldn't applaud it. But by yeah. applauding it, it makes it seem like it's some grand act mm -hmm. when I think it's just allowed. The bare people, minimum. Yeah, the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah, but I couldn't help but be, like, I said it to a bunch of my friends. And I'm, like, oh, my God, like, here's my nephew Cole in his first pair of heels. How fabulous. Yeah. And it's, like, whether or not that's going to you know change the course of his life who's to know but it's like i'm glad that that possibility is there yeah yeah i love that yeah that's what we all need like like all of our allies are our friends that know us and they have like 
these kids and that they're in charge of and that's all they need to do is just create other allies and like that's all you can do is just push it forward with the little you can maybe not every protest and every march but like make sure your everyday practices does that so you have kids that are accepting absolutely and there's so many times i look back at moments from early on in my life when where the shame was first built up by others, mm -hmm. whether it be classmates, siblings, what have you. All projection. Exactly. All projection. And it's like, if we can actively dismantle that. Yes. And just stay, like, not afraid to be yourself. Yeah. And, or, like, to self-edit. Yes. Because you don't want to be standing out when you should. Yeah. And you shouldn't be so miserable and, like, want to make me miserable. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Put on a heel. Yes. <laughs> Keep in your misery. No, without question. What was the media that you discovered as a kid that sort of introduced you to show business? Oh, I wanted to be on the Mickey Mouse Club. Like... I wanted like Kids Incorporated, all that. I aged myself no, right no, there. I mean, we, love, we love Kids Incorporated. I mean, I remember those, and that just gave me like theater kid. Like, oh wow, you could be a like a kid and be on a show. So that was always just I in my head was like needed to be in show business. You have to be now with Mickey Mouse Club. Was Britney getting your attention? Was Christina getting your attention? Justin was getting my attention. Fair <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I always really enjoy. Have you seen those videos that have like are recirculating right now because of Barbie of Ryan Gosling dancing on Mickey Mouse Club? Oh my gosh, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, that so got you're my attention. At Justin, but it's like that got my attention. Yeah, actually. I mean, <laughs> well, he kept my attention. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's I'm true. listening. That's, that, that is very true. And then, what about were there movies or music that you were really into? I mean, I remember George Michael was like huge in my eyes. It was like oh, like a like an uncoded queer person that everyone else was trying to say he wasn't gay, but he was completely saying, no, I am. And like, that was just so powerful to me. And I loved it. It was hot. And the models. Oh, I think that there are some artists coming up in that George Michael influence, mm -hmm. but no one that's really like, kind of has that sexual gravitas yeah. Yeah. of George Michael. And it's interesting because we live in a much more, I think sex, sometimes I think a more sexually open culture mm -hmm. and other times I look at Gen Z and, and I'm like, I, I don't know. But um, I crave that sort of like just that. that Heartthrob. Yeah. 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 Like everyone was like in love with him. Yeah. New York Magazine just did a recent story about the it girl mm -hmm. sort of profiling and talking about some of the it girls of the past. Connie Fleming, Chloe Sevigny, etc. And they didn't pose this question, but it is something I've been thinking about, whether or not the it girl still exists. Ooh. And, you know, we're talking about heartthrobs, and I'm also wondering, does the heartthrob still exist? Do you think that that we still have these figures, or do you think we're oversaturated? The turnover. The turnover rate yeah. is so crazy. You can't even, like, get a crush on someone because, like, they just said Ariana was in her flop era. And, like, it was like, what? Like, coming out of her flop era? I'm like... The, the expectation of something or of what is next or what else is there, it's so crazy that people will always look for the what if or the grass is greener on the other right. side instead of being like present. Yes. There's something about, I think, in the formula of being an it girl, which is that there's a regional aspect to it, right? Mm. Because it's like you're the girl in a certain space. Yes. And I think once it opens up, because the thing is, nowadays, everyone, when they see signs of an it girl, they want to take it global, right? Because yes. everything's about bigger, better. But I think it's hard to be an it girl when it goes that big because yeah. you lose. I think there's something about that regional quality. Mm -hmm. The that's coolness. Just the yeah. coolness, yeah. The grit. And there are those that can be massive and maintain the cool. Mm -hmm. 
but that's difficult. Yeah, very. I mean, that's a, probably something you're just born with, like a trait. Yes. You can't teach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you entered the Continental Pageants, as we're talking about, how old were you when you first got your, your feet wet with that? Well, you have to be 21 to run. Um, so I was 20 when I did the prelim. And by the time I it was time for the finals in Chicago, I was just 21, like, for a month. So I just made it in. So from 21 to 28 was my... Uh, continental time. I ran four times, and the fourth time was the charm in seven years. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it's wild. So that's 20. So, like, let's say 16, 17, 18 year old, 18 year old Sasha. Mm -hmm. What did you want to be at that point? What did you think life held for you? I mean, 16, 17, 18. I just discovered dance. I was just discovering what a trans person is. So, I was more so trying to get this all together mm -hmm. before I even like could think of like what is the dream that I want it was 17 fighting hormones and sneaking them 18 graduate 19 I had boobs and it was just like, as long as I can like feel affirming as quickly as possible which is what every trans person wants which I don't like recommend <laughs> take your time like it's not a rush um, we're in transition all of us all the time I mean that was the years of like I would call the second trans adolescence like we we have like two two times that we like mature we mature like as adolescents and then we have this like trans as adolescents so everything just kind of gets very fine-tuned i would say what about seeking out resources because you know the internet's around now oh my god we came up at a time when you couldn't nothing, google everything nothing and i kind of think it gave us a grit in seeking things out more yes um you had to really fight for knowledge about mm -hmm. things in a way now where it's wonderful that we have all this access to it now, but I appreciate the fact that- You had to really want to. You had to really want it. But yeah. we hover both where we know a world in which it didn't exist mm -hmm. and we benefit from the world that exists now as well. But how did you seek out other trans people, for instance, at, at that time? Well, it was through dance. I actually met my drag mom and the women, the trans women that have shaped me. I never had a picture of what a trans person looked like until I met trans women that were beautiful inside and out and had like jobs and had passions and careers and relationships and just knowing that it wasn't this scary dark thing allowed me to really embrace it and then realize really quickly that oh that's why I'm so shy and cut off because I'm I don't feel comfortable in my own skin um, luckily in Hawaii there was a doctor he would do like pro bono work for a lot of people who didn't have insurance that came from like the Philippines or you know people who didn't have like any medical care but on Fridays and Saturdays he would close his office up and just have it for the trans girls and they would he would uh, administer shots so you would go there with your $20 and get your fish food and <laughs> and you know everyone's like all the girls are lined up like it was there was a good bonding moment too yeah we all knew Rodwell <laughs> Dr. Rodwell <laughs> I know for me, there was a time I remember meeting my first group of other queer people and that paradigm shift in knowing that, oh, I'm not the only one. Yes. Because again, going back to before the internet, there was a time I remember for me when I thought, yeah, I'm the only, only I one. Felt like this. Yes. And, and, and therefore it's like uh, something, they must have glitched when they were making me, <laughs> totally. you know? And then all of a sudden you go and you meet other people and like, as you're pointing out with your drag mother, like they're beautiful yeah. inside and out, they're living great lives. And all of a sudden the possibilities mm -hmm. of what life can be 
shift on yeah, a I'm dime. Yeah, like, sign me up. Yeah. Do you remember when you first met other trans people? Was it with that doctor? Well, it was right before that. Like, I think during dance, I went to my, well, I went to my first drag show while I was, like, dancing. And I was still in high school, so it was, like, 18 and over uh, club, so they had a review. And so we went, I was like 17, just kind of snuck in and I watched my first drag show and it was mostly trans performers. I'd always say it's like those like teen movies where they open the door for like the the, um, the gymnasium and like, ah, like it felt like that, like smoke and wind was blowing uh -huh. and it just all made sense. Very, um, uh, what is it, Can't Hardly Wait, uh -huh. when Jennifer Love Hewitt <gasps> just walks in every time and it's like... <laughs> that hair. The hair. And like the... Like looking, <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring up Can't Hardly Wait. I've been thinking about that movie lately, and I'm like, nothing else exists like Can't Hardly Wait. So good. So and good. has hair ever looked better on film mm. than Jennifer Love Hewitt in Can't Hardly Wait? It's a good one. But I'm also like, there. we don't need a remake or anything. Like no. it's a singular piece. No. Maybe a reunion, a cast reunion. Melissa Joan Hart has a cameo in yeah. that. Seth Green. Yes. That's a good film. That was a good one. That, that was, was a funny. good film. So you p compete in the Miss Continental pageants. You win. Now you have the perspective of winning Drag Race as well. But what was that first win of Miss Continental like? Oh, how I do competitions. I get pretty <laughs> into it. Mm -hmm. It felt good. It was like a, a chapter in my life. And I always worked in like decades. So like at eight, I knew I was queer at 18 I transitioned at 28 I won continental and then now at 38 I win drag race so I'm really good in these like decades yeah like, there's a blessing yeah <laughs> what do you want from 48 oh uh, EGOT mm. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense now you mentioned the competitive nature but the thing that's interesting is everyone that I talk to about you, our friends in this industry, talk about how kind you are, right? So there's this, this um, I don't know if it's dichotomy is the word, but it's like this fierce competitor, but who recognizes that the competition takes place on stage mm -hmm. and is still this warm, loving force when in the dressing room with the girls, for instance. Were you always that way? Did you hone that? Because not everyone's like that. Yeah, well, I think... I think it comes from dance again, like all my core values and way I maneuver is through our dance instructor. He just gave us really good work ethics. And I just know that when we're competing, because we were competing to get center at dance, like everyone was like fierce and you wanted to be fierce, but you also knew like, hey, it is what it is. Like the talent's just going to show. So it was always a competitive vibe, but I always felt like I'm not competing against anyone. I'm literally challenging myself and it's the competition starts with me like it's for me to figure out you all should do the same you know and not like compare because really it's a matter of preference it's like that's what I always think of as any competition it's a bunch of judges it's pandering to their preference and what they think like that's all it is so if someone's taste isn't yours that's that's the score mm. you know so you don't have to take it so uh, seriously you know, yeah. like just be like the best you. Yeah. And like if you sell it, and that's another thing Monica told, like I watch Monica Monroe, she would sell it. Like she would, like whatever ridiculousness she did, she sold it that you believed it and you bought it. No receipts, <laughs> no returns. How do you decompress after that? Talk about like the continental era. You go, you finish, you just won this pageant, glam off. What do you do next? Glam off. 
smoking a huge blunt <laughs> while my family or my friends are all making food. We had like Hawaiian food later that day or like the next day. Everybody came over to the house and I just like it's just this like sense of relief. And it felt the same when I um, with Drag Race. Mm -hmm. um, it just felt like this calmness and everyone's so excited around you and you just like. Yes, like when Monica Geller was like, I'm always the host and everyone's, you know, no, no, don't leave. I just want to be like, I want the energy around me, but I'm completely exhausted. <laughs> totally, totally. When you talk about those meals, how are you in the kitchen? Oh, I love. You're cooking. I love, yeah. Okay, what yeah. are you cooking? I like to prepare like vegetables and meats. Like I didn't never realize I grew up eating very Asian in Hawaii. So like stir fry and rice, it's like a good one for me. But I love anything. I'm a, I, I used to bake a lot as mm -hmm. a kid. Now I'm just baked. Now I'm just baked. I'm on like a baking journey. Uh-huh. It's a science. You got to actually follow it. You can't like right. have pizzazz. You're either a good baker or a bad baker. There's mm -hmm. not the in-between. But then there's the, you can be a person who's like a recipe developer, which there, mm. there's a little bit more of like an art form to yes, it. Yes, yes. But in terms of like the journey of baking, you're either, you know, there's a continuum. It's really a follow follow instructions which not a lot of us do well <laughs> yeah no i see the instructions yes. i internalize them and for some reason i think i know better well what does step two say and then you'll like go to step four and like yeah. try to figure it out and you could just read it right or, or it will be like this recipe calls for two eggs but it's like i really like eggs and like i want extra protein so like we'll do four eggs right because in my mind i'm like this is gonna make it healthier blah 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 and it's like know that that's the not, ratios yeah it's, those ratios they're they're super important <laughs> so we talked about like you know watching drag race season one which i love going back and watching drag race season one. Oh, it was the best the fierceness oh they didn't know what they were doing too not at they were just all. like go for it everyone was committed to doing the thing despite not knowing entirely what the thing <laughs> would be but you know it goes back to what you were saying about that commitment yeah that you were talking about with monica it's that same thing where mm -hmm. it's like you don't necessarily need to know everything so long as I mean, that's, you're in it. That's like the fool's journey in tarot, right? Like taking mm -hmm. that step. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you say, going from watching the show to saying, this is something I want to be a part of? Because you know well people were wanting you on this show forever. But as you've articulated in, in other interviews you've done subsequently, when the time was right, you knew it was going to happen. And yeah. so 15 was the season you were meant to be on. Yes. And now I get now looking back, I'm like, oh, this is why because of what's going on politically and everything like this is my opportunity to be of the most use uh, would be this season. Totally. Not any other season it would have been as effective, I think. Do you have a favorite season of Drag Race outside your own? Ooh, I loved uh, season 13. Simone got Mick. That was such a good season. Strong. I had a good time watching it. I love, what is it, season five? Roxy and mm. all, like, Rolaska Talks and Jinx. That yes. was a good one. Water off a walk that duck's back. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Do you remember? I think it's season five with Monica Beverly Hills yes. and her coming out as a trans woman. That is a moment that I remember watching live on television. Do you remember watching that moment? Because, I mean, obviously there have been trans women on Drag Race throughout time. Um, but that was a really significant yeah. moment and a watershed moment in reality television. Yeah. Um, I've known Monica because I uh, used to live in Chicago. So I've known her for years. And so when she got on, I was really excited. I always kind of just thought she was trans. <laughs> I thought she was trash. Like, I just assume. I'm like, where? You got a doll up in there. <laughs> I mean, we can 
see each other you know like Mm -hmm. i see you (laughs) and it was a different time in the sense that nowadays because of people like you there are so many trans people on the show Mm -hmm. but at that time it's like again thinking of the, the state of reality television at that time it was the kind of thing where like things like that were declarations in a way that now thankfully there's just a cornucopia of people of varying identities on television where it doesn't feel like people need to declare themselves so much. But at that time it's like, thanks to her, it empowers other people to then come forward and just live their truth. Just be. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, So when you made the decision and you got the call, you're going to be on season 15. Mm -hmm. What's the first steps that need to be taken to prep for the show? I mean, I know that a lot of us think about the glam, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're thinking about getting the outfits together and everything, but I'm talking more, esoteric like in the sense of like what kind of mental prep were you doing knowing that not only are you going to be on this competition show but being on reality television is its own beast that you can't really prepare yourself no so that was my whole motto prepare to not be prepared Mm -hmm. whatever i had control over that's what i was focused on the fashion the runways then understanding what the challenges are I just wanted to be so prepared and I actually overworked myself and, and like my friends pushed me harder so that when I was on the show, it was really much more of a breeze. And then I was so prepared that I could be present in each challenge, which is the, really what I was concerned and like wanting to make sure because everyone knows that like Sasha Fierce, you know, she's fierce and the fashion will be cute and, you know, she'll do all, all her hair whips. But is she funny? Can she act? Can she sew? So I really did that and also i did a lot of work before because i was just on this mental health journey trying to figure out the meaning of life especially after my father passed at 80 uh committed suicide so trying to make sense of that and where he went and you know that's all religion and spirituality is is we have to find something that speaks to us that allows us to go to sleep at night and feel safe uh stories to tell our kids and i was trying to find this because i had you know, experiences of cult-like religion growing up. So I, like, threw away all this religion, but I realized spirituality is still a thing that I need as, like, a human. So trying to figure out grief, trying to figure out, like, this, how to take care of my family while they're grieving and and being very reckless with their grief and trying to be this calmness in the storm, really doing this mental work, um, and then during COVID, I lost more family, and that unraveled them more. And I, I'm just always fascinated with the human condition and what pushes people, like especially with grief. And and it's just ripped away. Like your the whole artifice is gone. Your real true personality comes out. Your fears, and it's wild to see how people metabolize that. Yes. And, work it out i just take control of everything you know i'm like let me plan the funeral <laughs> you know i'm like you all were like and plus like as a queer person i've had drama i've had trauma built into our lives so i knew how to quickly react and fix where you know my straight brothers and sisters were like i don't know how to plan a funeral <laughs> you know so like thank goodness i knew how to like take the reins and they allowed me to, which made me feel of use to my family also in a place that I was never allowed in the conversation to all of a sudden be the one that people are looking for, for advice was also healing for me and my family. So there was just a lot of real life that happened that made this show feel like, we're just playing, we're having fun. This is just dress up like real shit happens. (laughs) You know, this is not, 
like that crazy be celebratory be in the moment have fun because i knew as hard as that was when i was going through um all these passings and all these deaths i knew something had to be really good just like a pendulum swings back and forth i was like something's gonna be really good because this fucking sucks like, yeah. like tore me up and now this is this is that like the rubber band analogy the, the higher the mm -hmm. further the resistance the farther you go and now i'm shot into this stratosphere of like being loved for being myself absolutely which is like wild because that's all i wanted for my family and i to this day don't have that but i have it from like the whole world which is so wild it I'm is cry now. <laughs> when my dad passed in january I remember watching the way m the rest of my family was reacting yeah. to his death. And it's funny you it's mentioned- like David Attenborough. Like, watch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and my brother the became the, like you, the I'm going to plan the funeral, got right to work. And I remember my mom being so annoyed in a sense with him for thinking that he wasn't grieving right because it's right. like Jordan like people were getting mad at each other yes. and how they grieve yes which is like you can't tell someone yeah. how to grieve how are you living with grief now because I'm sure you experienced this or it's like right after my dad died everyone's reaching out yes. right but then after some time you're still in oh, the grief yeah but people don't ask you about it mm -hmm. anymore it's like the the polite niceness you know like let me just check in and then you're good right yeah you're good right you're posting again you're good you're posting again <laughs> yes um so how are you living with your grief now and, and i and i will say that recognizing that it's an ongoing process oh yes i mean it never leaves i don't know i i definitely was in grief for so long with my dad that when this other uh family members had passed uh it was uh, it allowed me to like fully let that lie yeah. like no like dad you're you're fine and everything but um i personally did a lot of <laughs> i mean this is a fun this is a fun podcast right we're just gonna go into it <laughs> um you know i did like a lot of meditation like workshops and weekends and retreats and you know done shrooms and connected and did um dmt that's like the death of your yeah. ego and i was able to do a lot of like healing in this like very safe practice with like my shaman but she had helped me like guide me through this like death experience so i could let go and like move on and yeah. it was beautiful yeah you know you shared on the show and you've talked about the difficult relationship that you have with some of your family today and that's a part of the being a public figure part that everyone sort of has their own, uh, navigates through differently. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately it's your decision on how much of yourself that you want to bring into public consciousness uh, and where the boundary lies by way of what people can know. Because your trauma is not for people to have an opinion about, you know, necessarily, but by the nature of reality television, people always have opinions yeah. by the things they see. I would imagine that it's like, you don't know where your relationship is going to end up with your family. It's no. not. So, but by going on television, making declarative statements about mm -hmm. it. That was intentional. That was, man, just have a beep yeah. then. Right oh, so interviews. You're not crying. <laughs> <laughs> we got the tears. That was intentional because my whole operating for my family was trying to get them to say that they love me or that they even like me. Yeah. So everything I did, like all the times I ran Continental was just so my mom could say she's proud, but it never happened. And it, it just came a certain time, especially getting ready for this. And the things that have, 
that they put me through. Like I was left with the home that my dad had left me. It was like the generational home and they were all fighting like tooth and nails for, they all felt entitled. Like they wanted, they should have gotten this house. And I even gave it away. Like, so they could just leave me alone. Like I did all these things and I'm like, you can have all of that. But from this moment forward, going on to this blessing, it's mine. Like, this is not to prove anything to you. I don't even need you all. And I really don't want you all to call me that all of a sudden some family member that I don't even know has like the surgery that they need that just happens to be $200,000, you know? No, ma'am. Fair. Accountability. That's why I did it. So they, they don't call. And then I blocked them all too. Healthy boundaries. Healthy boundaries. Yeah. Like how much times are you going to get abused before you like leave? It's the same thing, like even if it's family. That's the tough thing. I think that there's no hard and fast rules when it comes to this mm -hmm. because I think there's this instinct in us as people because I, I know I was fed my whole life. Like your family are the one people oh. that will be there for you yeah. no matter what. If, unless you're gay. <laughs> exactly. And, like, and then so what happens if it's conditional love? How yes. do you reconcile with that decision to walk away? And when do you make the decision to close the doors indefinitely and say, this is actually for me. Yeah. And you never know. Like I might talk to them, you know, at another funeral. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. Those are inevitable in families. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. Um, so talking again about Drag Race, I want to know about the first time you saw Rue because I've been in the presence of Rue a few times. I think that there are very few superstars left on this earth. Yeah. And like Rue is among them. Oh, yes. And like decades. 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 Like, like the Drag Race is the beginning of a chapter. Yeah. There's... All these yeah, there's a couple of series before. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, like when you feel RuPaul in the room, it's like, like that energy changed, you know, people just are in awe. And the way she like maneuvers and still finds like is aware that she's like first on the sheet and that it's her energy that is guiding everyone else. Like you can see this level of like a conductor, very tar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I remember when she first came in. And she said, hello, hello, hello. And you can hear it in the episode after we, um, I literally go, mama. <laughs> <laughs> and some people caught that, which is hilarious. But I mean, that's all you can say is mother. Yeah. yeah. Hello. Have you watched season 15 yet? Um, Yeah, I have. Some of the episodes I've watched in clubs. So mm -hmm. then I'd have to watch it again. It's just a terrific season of Drag oh, Race. Oh, I was in it. I would like break the fourth wall, look at cameras, be like, this is going to be so good. Yeah. Because <laughs> I imagine yeah. it's like it's 15 seasons into a show and any show is going to have to test itself to keep itself mm -hmm. going. I know other shows, I won't name them, but have failed to keep the momentum yeah. going. And I'm wondering for you, you, know, you come on season 15, you look around the room and you're like, not a matter of like, are these good queens? That aside, it's like, okay, what kind of television are we going to make? I literally would walk in and be like, who wants to make Emmy Award winning television, y'all? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, we're here. We're here to do a show. I think a lot of the girls, too, they also knew that we were doing a show. Like, you have to be big in personality. And a lot of the girls are younger than me. So they grew up with Drag Race, you know? Like, we're brought up on it where I had the experience of drag. Yeah. Pre- so watching them know, like little kid times, they were fans. They also know what was entertaining to them. Yes. And like Lux is a perfect example. Like the sound bites, the references. It's so chic. <laughs> it's so subtle. And then I didn't even realize half of the things she was saying there until like, you know, the fans like 
got it immediately. Totally. I was like, this girl, she's too clever. Totally. <laughs> it's incredible. I know that uh, you developed close friendships with a lot of these people. Yeah. Who would we be most surprised to hear that there was a real sisterhood with? Maybe one that we didn't see play out on the show. I definitely had a really close relationship with Lucy. Like, we were always, like, next to each other. We were just, like, get, we got the same jokes. And I don't think it was, like, definitely shown. There was a lot more story that needed to be shown, but... I think that and like Marsha and I had some like great moments. Um, Malaysia and I we were like the only Leos, so we just had so much fun. We were always fun. One of the big narratives on the show was people immediately recognizing the icon that you are from the outset of the competition. Yeah, that was wild. Which I don't know if we've really seen before. <laughs> I'm wondering. I'm I'm imagining that this happens with you a lot in life. How do you? kind of humanize yourself for people because when they come over to you and they give you the you're an icon you're a legend energy I'm sure it's great but it also it doesn't allow you to be just another person getting to know them because mm -hmm. they're putting you on an immediate pedestal and their expectations that come with that yes. and you might want to just be like I'm just another Judy in the room with right, you. Right. Do you have tactics with which to sort of like deconstruct their idea of who you are? Yeah, I think I've it was I've always done that because I was told <laughs> by my drag mother. She's like, you know, you look like a real like intimidating bitch on stage. So you better remember where you came from. So it's really like this aloha spirit that uh -huh. I always find that helps with me navigating when I'm not on stage because it everyone just thinks that I'm a bitch because of how I perform and then they're like, "Wow, she's actually really nice." So it it actually gives me like I get my jollies off of like like turning people's mind and being like, oh, wow, she's really funny and nice and goofy. And that's like the perfect balance, I think, for people to not feel, to feel also that they can relate to me instead of putting me on that pedestal. Right. Iconic fashion moments, you gave us many, but I want to talk about your talking head and the gloves. Because <laughs> I feel Let's like- Let's talk about the gloves. In the- canon it's uh, it's it has its own twitter page oh it fan does account. i'm sure it thank does. god sasha colby's glove it's necessary because they just played a huge role in the storytelling of this season it's just so funny and like it was just a, a like the, a little bit of absurdity that made people be like why is she wearing these gloves <laughs> and thank god right but it's interesting because like you know we talk a lot about the runway looks but i'm really fascinated by the decision making around the talking head look because that's the look we're gonna see yeah. for the entire season yeah right and that's also when we're going to be delivered some form of realness mm -hmm. not to say the realness isn't present elsewhere but like that's the real realness yeah. so how did you make the decision for that to be the sasha look well i had a few options and kind of has to get approved by the show. So you send in your, your options and they tell you actually, so they pick. And I think my other options were probably too sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so that just seemed like the the most covered and uh -huh. also the most relaxing. Like yeah. I, I could have like sweatpants underneath. But the gloves, okay, the gloves was, I was getting ready, um, borrowing things from Willem and they, and Sonique was there. And of course I helped Kylie, we were, like roommates so I was helping her when she won and she's like girl I'll get you some gloves because the continuity if you go on and you have one nail on you have to put that same nail on the whole season and it's like just gonna be rising so she's like do yourself a favor get a glove so then <laughs> so Willem actually gave me a bunch of glove options and the show approved uh, the old golden one <laughs> the rest is history right Speaking of sexy moments, mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about that finale. 
which you've spoken a little about the decision making around wanting to show your body. It's something that you're known for, but yeah. like, it was so fun for me. I was watching the finale with my mom in Pittsburgh and she just was like, there's the Sasha Colby experience, right? And I'm like thinking about that's, people like that's my mom. Why. That's why I did yeah. it. Because at the end of the day, the whole package was, if you allow me, this is what Sasha Colby can do. She could uh, interview Charo. She could sew something. I called her, I'm like, let's just do brunch. Let's be drunk Sasha Colby at brunch at the third number. And I'm pretty much just naked and rolling around on the ground. And that's my safe spot. But that's also where people actually, that's me. Yes. Yes. Let's talk about that finale because I'm going to say this. I lo love to the girls. Love to the girls. Genuine love to the girls. You were winning that season for me. For me. And so I'm just wondering, coming in, you know, we're talking about confidence earlier. Um, how did you approach the finale? Especially, I imagine a part of you had to know just how feverish the fans were for a Sasha Colby win. You know, and it could have been very uh, anticlimactic, but it people <laughs> still felt so relieved and invested. And yes. like, their reactions, like they were crying more than I was and I was a crybaby. But they were literally, they felt like they won. I saw so many reaction videos. I was like, okay, this is a cherry on top of a beautiful like Sunday that we've created all season. I need to like just mark it because I knew if anything happened, people would be like, oh, they gave it to her because she's Sasha Colby. I went to leave no doubt that I earned it also. And whenever we did Continental, if you keep on trying to be what Continental already was, they already have that. What can, what do you bring to it? Like, I wanted to put my stamp on Drag Race and not just make it, but like set another bar. Yes. You know? Yes. With pushing, pushing. As you do. With this cash prize, which has been doubled, you know, we hear people talk about the, the big things they want to buy. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in that. I want to <laughs> hear what are just some of the smaller things that you previously might have said no to. Oh, that I are mean, now yeses. groceries. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I I know my bank is like this hoe has said <laughs> negative two hundred for about twenty years, and now this bitch got two hundred thousand. <laughs> Somebody make a call. Um, I, it's just like the freedom, freedom, like to take my friends out to a dinner. Like I've been living off of my friends' generosity for so long, and. You know, they happily do it, but it's so nice to f actually be in a space where I can give back, where I can just at least take care of my friends. That's been the best. And take care of, like, I have one niece that I do talk to. That's my, you know, actual family. And I've, like, raised her since, I, we like, she was a kid. Um, and she has two kids, and I, like, enjoy helping her. You know, I enjoy, like, buying, like, toys, you know, buying love from my relatives <laughs> yeah but getting the kids something that they want and being able to do that and not feeling stressed or like that peace of mind uh feels great yeah because we, we don't talk about this a lot but like the making it as a professional drag queen when you don't have a platform like drag race mm -hmm. i imagine it's difficult it's a, it's a gig economy yes we know there's increasingly more people doing drag mm -hmm. clubs are shutting down right and left yeah People are not going out as they once did, perhaps because the pandemic would have you. Um, what was it like for you having to like make before before the drag race of it all, but having to make a living doing this thing that you're passionate about in which there's not necessarily a blueprint? Yeah. I mean, you are definitely your own contractor. You're in charge of, OK, if I have two or three bookings this week, this is what I can pay for. This is what I can do. Like you have to give yourself like a quota to make a week or to just be able to make rent or, you know, make do. Um, 
and it still is so fringe and it's so raw and gritty when you're not well-known well-known like a drag racer like for me it still had this like level of control though i'm signing in for myself i can decide whether or not i want to take this booking i mean the crazy amount of bookings that i've done in 20 years and like the craziest places i mean i think i've done everything already that's just because i've wanted to work i had to keep working just never say no and now I get to say no sometimes. Now you get to say no. Yeah. I'm, I have yet to practice that, though. <laughs> Isn't it funny, though, like, that this is the moment in which it's like the reward is the no, yeah. not the yes, yeah. which is an incredible shift. Yes. Um, and well and well earned. You know, speaking of all the travel you do, it's like you've gotten to go to so many places and see so many cities. Um, are there cities for you that stand out as far as having – you know, we talk about queer culture and we know mm-hmm. we have these epicenters, the L.A., the New York, the Chicago's. What are some queer epicenters that you found um, that are sort of more off the beaten path or that people might not think of as like great queer places? You know, I didn't know. D.C. is so gay. <laughs> D.C. is so gay. I thought like San Francisco was gay. Uh-huh. D.C. is gay. It is so gay. Like, do, like San Francisco is clubs. queer. Uh-huh. But D.C. is gay. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I never realized that it was like such a big gig. Okay. Yeah, you got. Yep, you know, yeah, yeah. I got asked the question like, "Oh, which city is more queer, L.A. or New York?" And I said, "Oh, wait, which city is more queer? Bushwick, Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> They're the queerest of them all." And I think it was like a Brooklyn uh, interview. Like, period. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've been, you know. Yes. I want to wrap up by talking about this title and what it means for you. And, you know, you've now done all of these incredible, all all this press around the show. You have this fabulous feature in Vogue. You're doing The Daily Show, which I can say, because by the time this comes out, it will be out. (laughs) You're doing all of this press, a lot of whom the readers, you're, you're reaching this audience of people who might not otherwise be exposed to drag artistry. And in that, you are this incredibly visible trans person who is seen winning, conquering, being their whole self at a time where, as you mentioned earlier, we're watching the rights and the dignity of trans people being revoked by legislatures, legislators, whatever. They don't even deserve the title. Uh, uh, (laughs) Some of them. Um, I'm wondering how, how, you know, and you said earlier, you said something about sort of the the pendulum, right? Clearly the pendulum's not in the the right place at the (laughs) moment. but from what you're saying, it would lead me to think that you are the kind of person that would be not just hopeful, but actually believe that this will pass. Well, I mean, it has to. I mean, this too shall pass. But I mean, it literally is this. That is life Mm -hmm. back and forth. So if we're on this side, it's going to have to swing back to the to where we are at least treated with dignity um, because there can't be that many people in the world. I refuse to think that there are that many people. People act and vote and do things based on themselves. They don't really take into consideration anyone else. When we have our one vote, we vote for what we want. And that's our one time to be selfish. So there aren't like necessarily a lot of people I think that hate us, but they just have to think about themselves a lot. And their values align with a lot of this miscommunication, this um, false narrative. And it all just boils down to white men trying to control everyone's bodies, women's reproductive organs, uh, the fact that we can't get like good health care, like what they're trying to do to trans people. And it's not even like they're they're lumping us all together. 
but really it's trans men aren't really getting attacked aren't really getting killed as much as trans women and that says a lot about these men who are objectifying us who are sexualizing us and then they get mad because we're living our truth and that makes them attracted to us maybe envious whatever it is it's just so threatening to their fragile ego and their their need to control it's just all about control so I, i'm like sitting here wondering like how did this happen like how are we now going from like wade versus roe to now sports bands like how like they're just flying anything at this at it and hoping something will stick yeah so i mean and that's really what it is that's ridiculous and i think the difficult thing right now is us as people who, who see all this and know it for what yes. it is having to watch it <laughs> but like legitimize it by reacting yes. to it because we have to yes but like but like by reacting to it speaking more power yeah they're to staring it. at the sky saying the sky's not blue it's red and we're yeah. like if i have to like let you know the sky is blue <laughs> like what the fuck yeah. but like but at the same time if, if we don't there are enough people that will we'll believe just it's believe red. it. Yes. Yeah. And I think the only way to like combat that is just keep living positive, happy, beautiful, queer, loud lives yeah. because that's our only protest right now. Yeah. They're saying all these things. They're saying that we were, you know, making our lives harder. And just our sh mere existence is going to prove that wrong. We don't even have to like scream and fight back or even tell them the sky is blue, you know? Yes. We could just be the sky. I love you. I love when good things happen for good people. And I love that not just queer people, but people tuning into MTV that happen to switch the channel at 8 p.m. on a Friday <laughs> can see you on their television and look at you and glorify you in the way so many of us in the queer community have been for years. And it's just an honor to be here with you. Thank you. I'm a ham, so I love this shit. <laughs> like, my friends are like, you're made for this. If any of our friends, like, we can bet money that Sasha will be just fine. <laughs> like, I'm a Leo. She's like, like, do you need, like, are you okay with people like taking pictures? I'm like, yes, I've been yes. waiting 20 years yeah. for people to recognize me. As long as the lighting is good. So I mean, you gotta get the right. <laughs> oh, I will find the light. Find the no, light. my friends are so good now in the middle of a club. <laughs> he got three lights on me. I'm like, they're like, Perfect. they expect you to be like really shy and like, and you're like, no, 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 like, oh, no, get over here. Yeah, come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah. We've got an approachable queen. Yes. Oh, shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.